But all I can conclude is that the Lord wants to teach us something from Psalm 19. And so if you're... That's right, I think your message was fine. Let's, let's go home then. <laughs> okay, if you're turning your Bibles to Psalm 19, and while you're doing that, you know, God has not left us guessing as to who He is, what He is like, and what His purpose is for us. He's revealed those things. And this 19th Psalm is all about God revealing Himself. And we're going to see that he reveals himself in two primary ways. First of all, through creation. God reveals himself in what we call general revelation. And he does this through creation. And he teaches us a number of things about himself. But he also teaches us more completely through his word. And we see that from verses 7 onwards, which Alistair read for us. And he shows us there all about his character and his will and purpose. And we can know what we need to know to live joyful lives and also to live lives that bring glory to God through what has been revealed to us. And so that's what we're going to see tonight in Psalm 19. And I think we should read the whole psalm. But I'll be focusing on those verses that Alistair read, so we'll get a double whammy there. Let's read from verse 1. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day at a speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. These are wonderful words. It's one of my favorite psalms. And in a nutshell here we see the first six verses are all about God's testimony through creation. From verse 7 to 11... It is God's testimony through his word, through scripture. And then verse 12 to 14, the psalmist offers a prayer. And it's a most appropriate prayer in the light of what he tells us about God's um, testimony. I just want to say a few things, first of all, about God's testimony through creation. And first of all, I want us to notice that this testimony is unmistakable. That's what we see in the first verse. 
the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. It is a clear testimony. There is nothing ambiguous about it. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, it says that all, of, all, all people are responsible because they know there is a God through creation, but they suppress that knowledge of God. People don't want to believe in God. They would prefer to live their lives and go their own way. So people are accountable because God has shown us through creation. That's what we just saw here. The heavens declare the glory of God. It is an ongoing thing. It is the heavens are always constantly telling and narrating the glory of God. So this is something that continues. The heavens here refers to the solar heavens. We see that from the context because the first part of verse 1 and the second part are in a relationship what we call synonymous parallelism. So the two lines of poetry are saying more or less the same thing. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament or the sky shows his handiwork. So the heavens refers to the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, and so on. And the firmament is about the atmosphere or the hydrosphere, the clouds, the birds, and everything up in the sky. So what it, the psalmist is saying is this is a demonstration of God's power. And he uses the word Elohim, which is always translated God. And whenever the psalmist wants to describe God's power and majesty, he uses Elohim, as he does in Genesis 1, where it says in the beginning God created, Elohim created. But whenever he wants to describe God's relationship with his covenant people, he uses the word Yahweh, as he does from verse 7 onwards. The law of the Lord, or Yahweh, is perfect. So here we see a demonstration from God of his creation. And he says that this creation, the heavens is an example of that, is always declaring his glory. And when we look around, we see how amazing this all is. It is a demonstration of God's power, his beauty, and his creativity. So creation, first of all, is unmistakable. In the second verse, we see that it is unceasing. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. So it is day after day. It is every day. It's not like, oh, look, God's showing himself today. It's every day, every moment of the day, God is being glorified and it is being seen in his creation. Night after night, day after day, a constant declaration. So it's an unmistakable testimony. It's an unceasing testimony. And verse 3 and 4 tell us it's a universal testimony. It's everywhere. Not just all the time, but everywhere on this globe. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out, or their voice or sound through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Wherever you go on this planet, you will see God, the glory of God, on display. There is no place where it is not seen. Someone has said that creation is like a wordless book. It is silent, yet it speaks. Because God is speaking through his creation. He speaks to all, but yet most people don't listen. God's testimony in creation is unmistakable. It is unceasing. It is universal. And it is also beautiful. Looking at verse 4b and 5 and 6. You take, the psalmist takes one example. He could have chosen a thousand different things in creation to demonstrate the wonder of God's creation. But he picks the sun 
and he shows how beautiful it is. He says it's like a torch in the tent of God's universe. Or like a bridegroom when the sun rises, it's like a bridegroom coming from his chamber. Or like a strong man, an athlete about to run a race. And so he compares the sun in these ways. The main point I want us to see from these verses is that the glory of God is seen everywhere. No matter where you go, there is God's glory. And he picks something that is majestic, the sun. But he could have chosen something small and microscopic. Some of you, I'm sure, have studied science and you would have looked through microscopes, electron microscopes. When I was at university, we had scanning electron microscopes and we could look at small you know, things really, um, not down to the molecular level, but we saw things really small. We saw beautiful crystals and all the wonderful things that God has made. But today they have the transmission electron microscope and you can see sort of bunches of molecules and things. And it is really amazing just to see the glory of God on a microscopic level or on a majestic um, level. So what should creation do? It ought to stir our minds to say, you know, there is a God and I want to find out more about him. And that's what the psalmist does from verse 7. He switches from talking about creation to the law of the Lord or to the word of God. He does it suddenly. There's no introduction. There's no transition. There's not even a conjunction. But he goes straight into it. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And here he begins to describe God's testimony in the Bible. You see, we've seen God's testimony in creation. Now he zooms in on God's testimony in the Bible. As we read through this twice now, you may have noticed some synonyms for the word of God. And I counted six. The first one is the law of the Lord. Now we know that the Jews called the first books, first five books of the Bible the law or the Torah. But here the psalmist is not just referring to those five books. He's referring to all of God's revealed word. And he's calling the Bible the law of the Lord. And he says this is perfect. The word law here refers specifically to the instructions that are given in the Bible or the teachings. The Bible is a manual for life. Christmas is coming. We'll hopefully soon get a couple of presents. We'll open them. And some of them will have a manual, you know, especially if it's an appliance. And most of us men, we'll push that thing aside. We'll think, I don't need that. You know, I can work this out myself. And we don't always read the instructions. And only when the thing doesn't work, we think, well, maybe I should have a look at it. It's foolish, isn't it, to do that with life. Here we have a book that is our manual for life. It teaches us what we need to know about relationships with other people about relationships with God, about the family, about the church. It teaches us about anything that has to do with the soul. And yet, most people in this world just push it aside, thinking, well, I don't need this. But the Bible is our instruction manual for life. It teaches us how to operate at maximum level. Are we using the Bible as our manual for life? A second synonym here is the testimony of the Lord. Now we all know what a testimony is. When you're going to apply for a job, you need someone to write a little testimonial for you and hopefully they'll say something nice, you know, so that you can get the job or whatever you're applying for. 
God in his word gives us a testimony of himself and his, his works. And so the psalmist says here, the testimony of the Lord, and that's what the Bible is. It's a testimony of who God is and what he has done. Another synonym is the statutes of the Lord. This word, I believe, emphasizes that the Bible is authoritative. You know, statutes are things that are important. They are, like, they are laws of the land. They are, they are important. And the Bible's statutes, we are reminded, are orders from the sovereign Lord. They are also called the commandments of the Lord. Commandments, too, have that idea of being important, imperative. We are to obey what God says in the word. You know, for example, he gives us the Ten Commandments. And these are not ten suggestions. They are ten things we must obey. And we are in big trouble if we don't. He also calls the Bible the fear of the Lord. Now that's an interesting one, isn't it? You wouldn't have thought maybe that it would be called the fear of the Lord. But here it's called the fear of the Lord. And I believe because God wants to evoke reverence in us when we come to the Bible, um, we see that God is not just a buddy. Yes, the Bible describes Jesus as a friend. And he is someone we can go to with all our problems. He's a shepherd. But yet, he is a holy God. And we are reminded that um, we are to fear the Lord. And that's what the word of God does. It evokes a reverence and a respect for God. Another synonym, the last one, is that it is called the judgments of the Lord. And I think this reminds us that the word of God is written by someone who is the judge of all the earth. When we come to read the Bible... The one who wrote this book is the one who created us, and he is the one to whom we will all day stand before. For those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that they will stand before him in judgment, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. And that's a serious thought. But for those of us who know him, we are told that we will be presented before him at the great white, not at the great white throne, at the judgment seat of Christ. And there we will be rewarded for what how we have lived our lives. Because Jesus paid for our sin, and so our judgment is taken care of in regards to our sin. Notice though, with all of these synonyms, the phrase, of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, all of them have that phrase. And that tells us that the Bible was written by God. I think sometimes we forget about that, don't we? We think, oh, the Bible is written by you know, Peter and Paul and the other prophets and that. But yet when we, when we read scripture and things like 2 Timothy 3.16, we see that all scripture is God-breathed. God wrote through these people. But here we have the mind of God. And so it is true to say that the Bible is 100% of divine origin. These are the words of the Lord. They are not just man-made thoughts. They are not just ideas. And I want us really to see tonight that the Bible is God's word. It is an important book. It is something that we are to take seriously. And the Bible must be something that is a priority in our lives. Six synonyms for the Bible, but there's also six descriptions of the Bible. First of all, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's the first um, description. Now, if I asked you, what does perfect mean? Maybe you'd say, well, it's something that is, you know, you can't improve on. If you're perfect, you can't do better, right? Um, when you had those reports, if you're a teacher, you have to write reports, and you seldom would say, this, this pupil is perfect, he just can't improve. No. 
Nobody ever wrote that about me, and I'm sure nobody's ever written that about you. Because we can always improve. But yet, this is a book that cannot be improved upon. It is perfect. It doesn't need any addition, um, new additions, new information, because it is a book that is perfect. It cannot be improved upon. It is sufficient. We are told, secondly, that it is sure. Now, most of us here are not completely reliable, um, but here's a book that is reliable. What you read on the internet, you can't always trust. Um, <laughs> I hear an amen there. But here is a book you can trust. Everything it says is 100% reliable. It is sure. It is also right. That is, in, it is inerrant. It is pure. That is, it is not mixed with anything that makes it impure. The psalmist said in Psalm 12:6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So the Bible is a book that is pure. It is also described here as clean. There is nothing corrupt. There is nothing dirty in it. It is also true and righteous. It is accurate when it speaks on a matter of faith, of history, of science, when there's a prophecy. All of these things are always 100% accurate because it is God's book. And he never lies, he never makes a mistake, he's always truthful. When we come to a passage and we say, how can that be? It would be far better if we said, Lord, I don't understand this, but I know it's true. And if my understanding is, is wrong, please reveal it to me and, and correct me. But we should never doubt God's word. Satan wants us to. He did that, that was his first trick in the Garden of Eden. So whatever the Bible says about God, it is true. What it says about you and me, it is true. What it says about death and what happens after death and where we go, that is true. When it speaks about our eternal reward, we can have confidence that it is true. Because the Bible is God's book. So these are descriptions, six descriptions that we find in verses 7 to 9. Now you might not have heard everything I've just said, and maybe you've taken a little bit of a nap there, but here is where I really want you to wake up. Because now we're going to see six blessings from the Bible. And it's in these same verses. We've seen six synonyms for the Bible. We've seen six descriptions of the Bible. But here are six blessings. See, the Bible is a book that is not just theory. It's a book that is written to change us. And that's the first one. In verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, Converting the soul. See, we all need conversion, don't we? We need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, so that we can be converted. We need to be changed. We need to turn from our sin to serve the true and living God. And then we are converted. The Holy Spirit gives us new life. We are new people, as we sang. We are new creatures in Christ. But does it stop there? No. As we continue to read the Bible, God continues to change us, to make us more like Christ, to sanctify us, the Bible says. And we need to be changed constantly. There's a man who I know very well, who when he was in his 40s was having um, big problems. He had grown up in a Christian family, but yet in his 40s his job became his priority and his family had fallen apart, his it looked like he was going to get a divorce, and everything was just going wrong. And in tears, he began to think about the Bible, and he began to think about his childhood. And, and he had memorized chunks of scriptures as a kid. His parents had 
you know, given him all these scriptures to learn. And the Lord brought back these scriptures to him, and it changed him. See, the Bible can change us even in the future from verses that we had learned far back. Because the Bible is a living book. It is not a dead book. But we need the Word of God to change us day by day. Because it is living. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes people have problems and they go to these 12-step sort of programs, you know, you, these marriage programs for people who are struggling and 12 steps and, you know, you'll be helped and that kind of thing. You know, maybe some people are helped by those programs. But I don't believe any of those sort of man-made philosophies and programs will bring long-term change. That won't bring a heart change. It might bring superficial change. It might, you might teach people a few tricks, like you can teach a dog a few tricks, you know. But the only thing that really brings heart change, long-term permanent change, is the Word of God. It brings conviction. It brings change. It transforms us. That's what it claims to do. And God never lies. And I know it works. The Bible will change us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How will people get saved? When they hear the Word of God. And so we need to be continually doing that in the workplace, in the home, here at Medway, wherever we are. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Secondly, the Bible brings wisdom. Now, we all need that, don't we? And who does it bring wisdom to? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, the simple here doesn't refer to those who are intellectually challenged. Okay? It refers to those who receive the word of God in humility and who, like a, a childlike faith, accept the word of God. So the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Bible enables us to understand truth. It enables us to make godly decisions. Sometimes we make foolish decisions in life. And we haven't considered what God says. We haven't taken into account the principles of the Word of God, the things that really have eternal consequence. And we make mistakes. And then we realize, well, how did I end up in this mess? The Word of God gives wisdom and skill for daily living. The Word of God also causes us to rejoice. Look at verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, rejoicing is not the same as frivolity. I remember Roger Volk many years ago teaching on that, and it just suddenly came to mind. And Some of you will know Roger. remember Roger Volk, and I remember him teaching on that. And... Because we often think of joyfulness as somebody who's always laughing. You know, but somebody who's not a Christian can be laughing all the time. But it doesn't mean that they have an inner serenity and a joy. You see, the biblical idea of joy is something that goes with us through thick and thin, through trials and tribulations. There is this peace about the person who knows Christ and who loves the Word and can go through life with this joy in their hearts. And that's what the Word of God does for us. It says it rejoices the heart. See, the Bible gives us a purpose. The person who doesn't know God doesn't have a useful purpose in life. Most people live for themselves. Most of us, at one time, we live for ourselves. But when we come to know God, when we study the Bible, we see that we have a purpose. And no matter what happens, 
we can have a joy in us. I'm not sure if any of you know, or I'm sure some of you know Voltrod Giesler, and she went to be with the Lord last night, if you didn't know. And she was a lady that you know I visited a number of times in the last few months, and whenever I'd go to her in the hospital or in her place, I knew she was in pain, but yet there was a joyfulness. And that's what the Word of God does for us. It allows us to have joy despite our circumstances. Like Habakkuk in the Old Testament, when things were not looking good in Israel, and he said, Though the fig tree shall not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vine, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's the kind of joy that we can know through reading the Bible, through studying it, through walking with the Lord and obeying what we see in Scripture, despite our circumstances. The Word of God brings joy. Also, it, it enlightens the eyes. Not only does it give us purpose, but as we read and study the Word of God, we begin to see the path that we are traveling on more clearly. Sometimes in life, it's kind of like, dark and we don't understand why things are the way they are, but the more we know God's purposes and understand them, we know that God has a purpose for us and he lights up the path and he gives us a reason to live. And we can begin to understand things and see things the way God sees things. Like Job, he struggled with his, his, his troubles, but he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. How many of us can say that tonight? If we lost the things that are dear to us, can we say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. The word of God enlightens the eyes. And fifthly, it endures forever. See, the benefits that we have from the word of God are for every generation. They were for our parents, our grandparents, and people who lived hundreds and even thousands of years ago. These blessings are the same. They are for people who live in the jungle and people who live in the inner city. It is one book for everybody. And we can all receive a blessing from the Lord through reading and studying the word of God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is living. It is relevant. It is always fresh. It is never obsolete. It is never stagnant. The Bible is for everyone, for every generation. It endures forever. And the sixth blessing we see here is that it warns us. Now, most of us, we don't like to be warned. We think if somebody warns us, we kind of get a bit you know, upset and hot under the collar and think, who's this person telling me what to do? But have you ever been in a situation, I'm sure you have at some point, where you've gone down a difficult road and at the end you get into a bit of trouble and you think, why didn't anybody warn me? Why didn't somebody tell me this is not a good path to go on? I know I've done that when I've led people up a mountain once or twice and I didn't take a map or I didn't take something with and, you know, we end up in a bit of difficulty and people say, why didn't you plan this properly, you know? We appreciate it when somebody warns us. The Word of God gives us many warnings. And we should appreciate those because it saves us a lot of heartache if we take God's Word seriously. 
Because we have someone who loves us. We have someone who's gracious. And he knows us. He knows that our hearts tend to stray. And we need those warnings to come back and to live a life that is pleasing to God. So, friends, these are, warning, these are six blessings that come to us as we read the Word of God, as we study it, and as we obey it. This is a great book, and it is for us. The logical conclusion the psalmist has is in verse 10 and 11. So he says, So the Bible is more to be desired than gold, yea, much than much fine gold. We all realize the value of money. We all realize the value of possessions. We need these things. But here is a book that is infinitely more valuable than anything we could ever own. It is more valuable than honey, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb, than any pleasure in life. Job said, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. The Bible is much better than a wonderful breakfast of bacon and eggs. It is better than a lacquer braai. Well, it should be. Is it that to you? Is it that to me? Do we long for the word of God more than we do a wonderful Christmas lunch. Jeremiah concurs and he says, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. That's what the word of God should be for us. Having seen the value of the word, the synonyms, the descriptions, and the blessings, that's why these folk could say, I delight in your word. Do you love the word of God? The psalmist ends with a prayer from verse 12 to 14. And he asks the Lord, he says, cleanse me from secret faults. There are sins that we commit that we don't even know. I mean, we wouldn't know that we, that we had committed them if we didn't know. But the Bible tells us that we, we sin unknowingly. Maybe you offend somebody and you don't know that you have offended that person. But that's sin. And so the psalmist is so concerned that he is not guilty of any sin, so he asks God to forgive him of sins that he has committed, but he is not even aware of them. And then he says, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Those are those high-handed sins. The ones like you would say, Lord, forgive me for what I'm about to do. You know that what you're going to do is wrong, but you've got such a streak of passion against someone or something that you want to just let them know about it, you want to give them a piece of your mind. Those are those willing, you go into them willingly and knowingly. You're deliberate. The psalmist says, hold me back from those kind of sins. You see why? Let them not have dominion over me. The first time we sin in a high-handed way, it's difficult because we feel guilty, we feel a conscience. But as we do it more and more, it becomes easier and easier, doesn't it? And so the psalmist says, don't let me go down that road. We don't want to be guilty of committing those high-handed sins. It is one thing to sin unknowingly. It is another thing to go straight into it and hope that the Lord's going to forgive us afterwards. Then the psalmist says, accept my words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I believe that could apply to the very words he's just said, because he wrote these words. They were the words of David and yet the words of God at the same time. 
And so he's saying, Lord, accept this. This is my offering to you. But it could also apply to his whole life. It can apply to your life and my life. Can we say, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you? Is that your desire? Do you want your thoughts, your whole inner being, to be acceptable to God? Is that your passion? The psalmist ends with these words, O Lord, my strength, or my rock, and my redeemer. It's been a long year. Some of us are tired. But the Lord is our rock. He's our strength. You may be struggling with fear. You may be struggling with tiredness. But remember, the Lord is your strength. He will carry you through these last couple of weeks and into the new year. And he will provide what you need. He's your redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins, to buy us back from the slave market of sin, to be our redeemer. We're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our redeemer. What a wonderful thought that God is our strength and he is our redeemer. So we can't fix the things we've done wrong this year. We can confess them to the Lord. Maybe we haven't read the word much this year. We can't change that now. But we can change what happens next year. My prayer is that each one of us would value the word of God. That we will take it seriously. That next year we will be committed to reading the word of God and to Bible studies and to becoming stronger in our faith through the word of God. And I pray that the Lord would use his word to change you and to change me. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much.